out of the shotgun again. This crowd roaring. Takes the snap. Sets up. Sets up. Throws one over the net. Intercepted. Marlon Jackson. Marlon's got it. We're going to the Super Bowl. Listening to the Hoosier State Sports Show with Adam and Joey. Blood is running down my face, tears are forming in my eyes. Father always told me pain is temporary, keep in stride. Lift your head up, don't you cry. Fighters always will survive. That hurt you feel inside can only mean that you're alive. Keep your head down and digging. God will provide you vision and lead you where you need to be. If you just shut up and listen. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to the Hoosier State Sports Show. My name is Joey. As always, I'm joined by my friend Adam. How's it going, Adam? Exhausted, bro. Exhausted. <laughs> I can somewhat relate. I'm not as bad off as I was last week, but as always, I'm excited to get into some sports talk with you. I do want to throw this out there. Probably going to be a bit of a longer episode, so I hope you'll stick with us for the ride. But with that, Adam, you want to let us know what all we're going to cover today? Yeah, so we're going to talk about the state of the Colts cornerback room post Isaiah Rogers drama. We're going to talk Big Ten football schedule shakeups, IU basketball and baseball news. Can Zach Eady improve his draft stock? And finally, with that will come a debate that we've been waiting on for a couple of weeks. And then Pacers draft rumors will be how we kind of wrap things up this week. Yes, indeed. So... Let's jump right into some Colts talk, Adam. This will probably be one of our shorter discussions of the night, but just a bit of the fall-off of what we talked about last week. You know, Isaiah Rogers hasn't had his suspension or ban or whatever it's going to be handed out yet, but it will be soon. But what that proposes the question, Adam, we have to take a, a look at what the cornerback room looks like for the Colts after all of that goes down. So let's first talk about some of the notable quarterbacks still on the roster outside of Isaiah Rogers, of course. So you got the Kenny Moore, who's kind of the veteran of the group. Now, he is the nickel cornerback, so not really much he can do by way of replacing Rogers. Then we go into your guy, Dallas Flowers, you know, a, a special teams ace last year. Maybe he's a guy that could take a step up in the defense. And then you look at the three rookies this year, hometown kid Juju Brents, Darius Rush out of South Carolina. A lot of people think that he's got a legitimate shot at starting and excelling in this defense Yeah. in Jalen Jones. And then I just wanted to put this in here too, and it'll lead into the question that I have for both of us. Here are a few notable free agent cornerbacks that are still available in free agency. You got Marcus Peters, Ronald Darby, Byron Jones, Eli Apple, and that's just to name a few. So, my question for you, and I'll answer it also, Adam, is should the Colts roll with the young guys that they have currently, or, or should they take a shot on a veteran? And if they choose to go that route, who do you think it should be? Well, before I answer the question, one thing that also sticks out to me about the, the cornerbacks that we have on the roster is outside of Kenny Moore, Dallas Flowers only has one year of experience. So, you know, yes. we really are lacking an experience. Definitely in that a young, young group. Now, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a yes and no to this question about should we roll with the young guys or not. I think in short, you need to give the young guys a lot of time to develop this year. And I was hearing great things out of Darius Rush, particularly when you mentioned him. He's really been lighting it up at camp, and there's actually, like you said, a lot of belief that he could be a starter. 
And, you know, Juju Brents, obviously, with his high pedigree, you know, being a second rounder, you know, lots of ideas that he could start. And then certainly Kenny Moore will probably continue to be the nickel corner. So in an essence, do I think we have to sign somebody? My answer is going to be no. But uh, I'm going to name a player that you didn't name on your best available list. And this is because of familiarity with the scheme. But Casey Hayward, who's played with the Steelers and Raiders, in recent years, that corner is still available, and he knows Gus Bradley's system already, having played under him in Las Vegas. So that could be a name that Colts fans might want to keep an eye on. So where, where are your thoughts on this question? Should we roll with the young guys or not? Well, I, I have a pretty similar thought process as you, and I'm glad you pointed out Casey Hayward. But like you said, I do believe that eventually these young guys are going to have to get the snaps one way or another, whether that be – you know, the team's hands are forced like it could possibly be this year and they get thrown in there or somebody going down and they get thrown in there. Either way, these guys, especially this top two, Juju Brents and Darius Rush, you have to imagine they're going to find their way on the on the field early and often, especially with all the recent events going down in that room. But I'm glad you threw out Casey Hayward. I don't know how I missed him, but to me, that would kind of be like a Gardner Minshew pickup, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. Minshew's strongest suits. Let's let's list a few of them. He's a veteran. Maybe he isn't the best, but he's capable in his position, and he has familiarity with the system as Minshew was with now head coach Shane Steichen in Philadelphia. So I could see Casey Hayward playing a similar role as Gardner Minshew. Bring him in, you know, as you mentioned, the familiarity with Gus Ed- or yeah Gus Bradley's defense. So if anything else, he would be a great resource for these younger guys. So do you think there's a name maybe on the list other than Hayward that you would, of those four, who would you pick? Maybe Marcus Peters. I mean, all these guys with the exception of Eli Apple are creeping up there in age. And even Apple himself, I think is approaching that 30 mark. But I I think a guy like Marcus Peters could come in much like Gilmore did last year. And I know, he wouldn't have the familiarity like a guy as Casey Haywards would have, but he is a guy with veteran experience and he knows what he's talking about. So I think he could also be a good resource to these young guys and also a guy who I think could contribute for a year or two. Yeah. And and here's what I'm going to say about this too. Here's the reason why I don't think it's ultimately, you know, like a big thing that we have to sign a corner when you consider that all of these guys other than Kenny Moore are also on multi-year contracts these guys aren't going anywhere other yep. than Kenny Moore flowers, Brent's rush and Jones are all on multi-year. We're talking four years flowers on three. So, you know, you have these guys around for a while, let them develop. And, you know, like the Colts have done a good job of using late round corner picks and letting them develop, or, you know, kind of to throw this out too. If you have to get a, a corner, you know, they've also done a good job at getting a guy in free agency like they did with Xavier Rhodes a couple years ago. And uh, I can't think of the other guy's name at the moment. He played, I want to say, for New England or the Jets for a year. Uh, Pierre Desir, there we go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he did good for us. And, you know, Chris Ballard figured out right to get rid of him. So, you know, when you have those factors in play, you could certainly make moves. But I think something else we have to remember as Colts fans too, you know, it's going to be a long season. I I would not throw Super Bowl aspirations our way. I w- I'm not even going to throw playoff aspirations our way. 
I think it's important that you let all the young guys learn to develop and gel together this year. So I, like I said, that's why I ultimately don't see us making any moves. And plus we know Chris Ballard is conservative with his uh, signings and free agency anyway. And I, I agree with what you said there. That's an important piece of the puzzle is the expectations for this year. Now I'm not talking about expectations from you or I or any Colts fans out there, but the legitimate expectations from the front office, the team in general has to be established by now. And if it's anything short of, you know, like you said, making a run at the Super Bowl, and realistically, we already knew this year was going to be kind of a year where we witnessed some of the growing pains, especially if if uh, Anthony Richardson is out there week one as your starter. You're going to expect a little bit of a hiccup. So to your point there, if that's the season we're walking into, which we more than likely are, then that really does lower the stakes as far as going out and, and spending money on one of these guys. So that's a great point you just made right there. Yeah, definitely can agree with you on there. So moving on to Indiana Hoosiers talk. So this is actually news that relates to all of us, you know, Purdue and IU fans alike. But uh, I wrote an article this week about the new college football schedule for the Big Ten. You can find that on HoosierStateSports.com. But what's going to start happening in 2024 is that IU and Purdue both will start facing a combination of USC and UCLA each year. So that is when their their expected move to the Big Ten will take place. Now, what's interesting to me is the the Big Ten made some decisions on rivalries that were going to be protected, and uh, they actually put IU and Purdue's rivalry as one of the ones at the very top that had to be protected. So certainly I think we can both agree that that's a good thing for you and I because we can, ste- we can yeah, keep, keep doing our Keep that whole open bucket game intact every year. I think that's the only – the only right move that could have made, been made as far as that goes. I am a little bit dissed that IU and Michigan State won't be playing every year because the old brass platoon was something that, you know, had become really gone back and forth. IU somehow manages to beat Michigan State on a regular basis, but we lose to everybody else. I don't know how all that works. But here's the big thing that kind of stood out to me about IU schedule, because I that's mainly what I discussed in my article. So, In 2024, IU will not face Michigan or Ohio State. Similarly, they will also play UCLA for their first first ever matchup at home in 2024. So that's a slight preview of what I discussed in my article. There's more in length on it there. But, Joey, first thing I want to ask you is, do you think that the elimination of East versus West for Big Ten is a good thing for IU? And then do you think it's a good thing for the Big Ten as a whole? Well, I'll leave the IU aspect to you, the the IU alum, but as a whole for the Big Ten, I think this is a good thing. I mean, we all saw the Big Ten championship game last year, you know, and this pains me to say, but my Purdue Boilermakers absolutely got rolled by Michigan in that game. So, I mean, and and rightfully, it should have been a Michigan-Ohio State Big Ten championship game. We all knew that one of those two teams were the most deserving, so... To me, at the end of the day, at the very least, I don't know how they're going to have the, you know, the limitation set up on who makes the Big Ten championship game. It, but I can only be, imagine that this is at least going to help that case. It will end up being the top two teams. That's actually a good question. Yeah, that see, you and that, that right there in of itself makes this a, a success, in my opinion. I, I was never a big fan of the whole East versus West thing. 
So I think that ultimately this is going to be a good thing for the conference. Well, and again, my article goes into IU's ramifications for this, but I, I, I talked about it at length. This is a huge lifeline that the Big Ten has given IU. Again, two years ago when we were in the bubble with COVID, IU went eight and four. IU doesn't go eight and four in football ever. And so what's happened since, you know, everything has reopened up and these divisions have really taken bigger prevalence is that, you know, IU has had some of their worst seasons on record and IU embarrassingly took on the most losses in NCAA football history last season, took that from Maryland at that. And so, Hey, at least IU is setting, setting records in one form or fashion, right? Uh, it's not a record I like owning. <laughs> it's a tough pill for me to swallow. But the thing with IU, too, is, you know, not having to face Michigan every year, not having to face Ohio State every year. Uh, I believe that in 2024, we don't face Penn State. Penn State is really taking a step up. So uh, the Big Ten Eastern Conference, which IU is in and Purdue was not, they were in the Western, you know, that IU and Purdue is where that split actually happened conveniently is that you know IU is facing basically in my opinion all the better Big Ten teams you know Rutgers has taken big steps Maryland has taken big steps Michigan State is still you know a savvy enough team to perform you know they're average at best so you know you have all those teams that have consistently been playing IU and IU loses those and it is worth noting that, yes, while IU lost to Purdue from the Western Co or Division last year, we did beat Illinois. And that was a rivalry that I was always surprised wasn't taking place more often because, again, those are cross-state rivals, and there used to be a rivalry with them. So that being said, apparently there is a history with USC and IU football, which I didn't know about back in the 80s and 90s. I guess they played in some Rose Bowls. So – you know, there is some significant history there, but I, I, you will get pummeled by them when Malachi Nelson becomes the new starting quarterback. So anyway, well, and uh, just real quick before we move on to any other IU stuff, I, I did want to throw this out there too. I know geologically the whole UCLA and USC joining the big, big 10 didn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, you, you think about all the travel, especially the, those two, programs are going to have to partake in. Think about all the teams on the exact opposite side of the country that they're going to have to go to and vice versa. You know, you think of the Rutgers, the the Marylands, you know, all the way up there on the very northeastern part of the country, coming all the way basically from the southwestern part of the country. That's a lot of travel for these young guys. But, but that being said, I do think that both of those programs, not just in football either, both of those programs joining the Big Ten dramatically improves the level of competition and ultimately I think will be better for every team in the conference. I can certainly agree with that as well. And, and hopefully, you know, I know the big 10 made a lot of this based on money and contracts and getting TV rights. I, I get it. And USC and UCLA will really give the big 10, I think a better run in basketball because, you know, UCLA is considered a historic program. USC is not too shabby themselves, but Again, overall, I think the move is good. I'm glad for IU State. And, you know, as I mentioned before, you guys can read more about that on Hoosier State Sports. But moving on, Joey, this is something that I, I ran across actually on my school's websites and people that I, I work with had been sharing. But uh, 
big news out of Kokomo. So Flory Bedinga has expressed this past week he wants to make his decision on his basketball future before his senior year. Now, I can tell you that I know that his senior year starts August 2nd, which is when my official contract with Kokomo restarts. Now, what's worthy to me with him is here's what we know. He's made three visits to IU. That's why I put it under the IU Hoosiers umbrella. And two of those games were win, were games that IU won. One, I believe, was North Carolina. The other one might have been Purdue or some combination of that. It was I, some of IU's bigger games that he attended. So yeah. he's obviously had a lot of interest from Cincinnati. He's had a lot of interest from Kentucky. Purdue has been, had a lot of interest. But – what I'm seeing now is that Duke is reportedly his Duke school is now just starting to make interest in him. And, you know, Duke, you know, in their history and everything that they can offer, you know, a basketball player. So that being said, the reason I'm, I'm going to kind of bring this up about predictions real quick is that Zach Eady will be gone at Purdue at the end of the year. Calo Ware will be a one and done at IU as well. We got him from Oregon. So there's going to be a job at center opened up for both of our schools in the Big Ten. So I'm going to ask this and try to keep your biasness out, and I'll try to keep out mine. But do you think that one of our two state schools has an advantage over the other one at the moment, uh, if you were to decide between those two? I mean, biased or not, I think it's pretty clear that as of right now, IU is sitting better in the Flory Bedunga sweepstakes. I mean – you report you you just mentioned he's made the three visits to IU. Um, I know that Matt Painter has been recruiting him pretty hard. If you recall, everyone listening, Adam and I actually got to meet Matt Painter a couple months ago when we went and watched one of his games here in Huntington, Flores. I'm referring to. But as far as you know, everything that's been made official and public, it sounds like IU has the upper hand between the two teams now. That could change. I don't know. But as you mentioned, if he's wanting to make his decision, you know, before his senior year begins, we're talking, you know, less than two months. So I don't know how much room Purdue could gain in those two months. Now, do you have an ultimate prediction on where you think he goes to school? Are you biased or or are you or not? Where do you think Uh, he ultimately goes? I think it would ultimately come down to Kentucky and Duke. You know, two, and I mean, I throw IU in there, but. I, I do think that the two that it's going to come down to is Kentucky and Duke. You talk about, you know, the blue bloods of college basketball, and I know I use up in there in that conversation too, but you actually just filled me in on something that I wasn't even aware of. I didn't know that Duke was a dream school of his, but the fact that Duke's come in late and has started to show interest, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's what ultimately persuades him, you know, if he's already got a past you know, thought about attending there and they come in and offer to him, I could see him going to Duke. Now, what's interesting to know, and this might surprise you, a lot of crystal balls actually have Flory going to Cincinnati. Now, I will tell you at that game we went to, there were several representatives from Cincinnati, not just one. And so I think there's that, you know, we talked a week ago about Mike Woodson's ability to to say no. So I think that the state slash regional schools have more of a chance. I think Flory will ultimately do what is going to be best for him. So me thinking through the lines, okay, me thinking about 
everything. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw the idea that I think Cincinnati's gonna somehow get him. I think that Flory might be looking to make a bigger presence than what he leads on. You know, he is a super nice guy, you know, very humble, still learning the game. But I think for him to develop his game, it would be better if he was not at a Big Ten school, not at an SEC school, and not at an ACC school. So I don't know what conference Cincinnati is in. I think they might be Big 12 for football. I don't know if that's where they are for basketball either. But the expectations there for him to perform are not nearly as big. So I think having a chance to develop might be important to him. Plus, it it probably tells the idea that he doesn't want to be a one-and-done. Now, he is a 6'9 center. He's a little smaller. So I don't really know any of those schools, especially like ours, IU and Purdue, that want to play smaller centers anymore. Yes, we had Trace Jackson Davis at 6'9", too, and yes, it worked. But, you know, Flory really has an emphasis for rebounding and blocking, and you want the guy to be a little bit taller. I guess if he holds true to his wish of uh, making that decision before his senior year begins, we'll know in the next couple months. But with that being said, what else you got for IU, Adam? All right, so we'll we'll try to go pretty quickly on this. So this week, Cal Ware, who is IU center, has made the decision to no longer participate in the Team USA under-19 tournaments and camps. So with that, you know, here's my basic question about it. Do you think that this is an emphasis on trying to develop more at IU to really build his draft stock and, you know, not have to worry about the pressure of injury? Or do you think it could be a sign of something else? Like, let's say he's maybe got a weakness he doesn't want people to see on, like, a national stage. Well, if I'm him and my goal is to, you know, get this one year of college basketball over with and get to the NBA, I'm not taking any added risk. You mentioned the injury risks of, you know, participating in something like that, and I wouldn't do it either. So in my opinion, if anything, it's that more than anything that has caused him to withdraw from that. What do you think? See, I don't know. I'd like to think that, but, you know, I would want to think, like you said, that he wants to develop at IU, but I don't know. This seems weird. Like this is a very big honor for, you know, college players to receive. So in my mind, if I'm receiving this honor and then I kind of start denying it, I I think there's, I don't know. it, It just seems a little bit fishy to me. I think there might be something he's not wanting people to necessarily see, or like, you know, he may not be ready to compete on that kind of national stage, which to me, bring some concerns but uh, hopefully that's not the case but finally on iu so this is kind of an interesting you know conversation turn that i want to take so last week we talked about kentucky and there was some more news about the drama that came out this week so iu baseball coach jeff mercer was quoted as saying this week that iu will not play kentucky again anytime soon in, in his quote, he mentioned that Kentucky canceled the series at the end of last year and reportedly can't, Kentucky is not willing to play baseball in Bloomington. Hey, that should sound familiar from a different sport. And so, again, they were supposed to play at IU this year, Kentucky was, and I believe they had another three years on the deal they signed. Kentucky was quoted as saying, you know, we don't mind if IU comes down here, but we're not going up there. So, the reason I mention this is a couple of things. So, number one, these two teams have played baseball 44 times since 1903. 
So again, there is a clear history there with these two teams. Now, football was was similar. I'm going to put was similar. They had played 36 times dating back to 1893. But in, in 2005, Kentucky stopped due to physical concerns. And then finally, we know about the basketball rivalry. Most of us do in that, you know, for years, it was back and forth with them. Now, Kentucky hasn't played against IU on their court since Christian Watford's winning shot in 2010. Again, think about all of that history between these two schools. Mercer is saying they're not playing anytime soon. We know they're not playing each other in basketball and in football. They are in two different conferences. There's really not a big reason for them to play each other. But what was interesting about this tournament last week is that there were 6,796 fans. I use baseball capacity in their stadium is only 2,500. So you're talking a lot of fans going to Kentucky to see this game. And I don't know if they're all Kentucky fans. Let's assume that they're not. But that, but that number holds as a Kentucky record. So you know that you have fan interest in people seeing these matchups. It's clear based on the fact that that many people came to see IU and Kentucky play. Now, I want to put all the stuff I reported last week about the intentional hits and the locked locker rooms, everything aside. And I want to get an honest opinion here. Who do you think is to blame for this rivalry's end? And I'm talking all Kentucky and all IU sports being stopped. Do you think Kentucky is being a baby or do you think the IU is not being more lenient? You know, it's hard for me to sit here and give you a legitimate answer, especially when all that stuff you, that you shared with me last week is still pretty fresh in my head. But this whole scenario is just so weird to me. I mean, you look at like IU and Purdue, one of the biggest rivalries in all of college sports, no matter what sport it is. And yet you have people in each program that respect and admire the hell out of each other. So a lot of times rivalry stays between the players and the fans. You know, that that's what makes it fun. There's clearly something here between Indiana and Kentucky that has exceeded just the players and the fans. I don't know if it's the coaches. I know you threw out Mercer's comment or if it's the programs in general that just don't mesh together well or something. But there's just something weird about this whole scenario, in my opinion. And and I'd have to say I, I agree with that as well. Now, I'm going to I'm I can't figure out who to blame more. So my answer is going to be, I'm going to blame both sides. And here's, I think that's fair. And here's the reason why. Again, I'm going to pick on Kentucky first to get it out of the way, and then I'm going to talk about IU. For Kentucky, it is simple. Again, for them to not want to come to Bloomington for baseball, I, I don't think that's right. IU comes for three years to play series. IU loses most of those games, I might add. In Kentucky for these baseball tournaments and then you know when it's time to turn the corner there's they're still considering canceling the series I don't know that 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 rubs me the wrong way despite Mercer's comments if he says they're not playing Kentucky that means that Kentucky is not going to be playing IU I'd like to take a baseball coach at his word but here's my thing I don't care about the football rivalry as much because again IU's got enough problems playing big 10 opponents so we'll we'll not pick on that too much but my biggest problem with all of this is, you know, 
there is, like you said, a mutual respect between fans and players. And college basketball in particular is missing a great piece of history. Something that just magically goes away because somebody within these two schools doesn't want to play ball. Again, I'm going to say this much, and that's why I'm going to blame IU as well. Kentucky has specifically asked for neutral site games. I know there was a neutral site game that was played, I want to say a couple years ago in Indy, or that was planned for Indianapolis. And then there was one that Kentucky wanted to have in Lexington, not on their campus or something. But my problem with IU in this case is, again, very simple. You know, if you want to keep a rivalry and history going, you know, to be fair to Kentucky, for the basketball program in particularly, which I think is where this whole rivalry is stemming from in all sports, let Kentucky have their little basketball game in Lexington. Make IU's men come down there. Because you know what it's going to do? It's going to renew a great rivalry, and that's going to get fan interest. And then... Kentucky then gets to own the terms of how everything goes. They're mad Kentucky is because IU basically owns the last win in basketball. Watch this whole thing go away if Kentucky were to win some basketball game, and then they're going to open up all the sports again. And then I think in anything that's not basketball, Kentucky's going to be like, yeah, well, you know what? You guys came back down here. Maybe we can go to IU. I'd like to think that college institutions, you know, are full of professional ethics, you know, and I'm not talking about the coaches. I'm talking about the universities themselves. I don't know where the whole thing stems from. I'd like to know more about it myself. But again, there's there's history here that is being missed out upon because someone wants to be a baby. And I honestly think it's both teams. I think you summed it up pretty well there. I share a lot of what you just said. And again, I don't mind that, you know, the last game that Kentucky lost was on my 18th birthday. I'll I'll hold that memory and cherish it forever. But I can cherish that memory forever and they can keep playing basketball now. Because like I said, that was 13 years ago. That means the last time they played basketball, we were still in high school. That's a scary thought, actually. It is a scary thought. And that's the point. That not, means that they, not the fact that that was the last time they played basketball, but the fact that we was that was 13 years ago and we was in high school 13 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, times are getting older. And hey, you got a birthday coming up in just a couple of weeks, too. Oh, indeed, even, just under a month. You won't even be a solid 30 anymore. But I know you've probably had enough about talking about IU for the day. So I'll, I'll take, you know, it on the chin and we can talk about Purdue now, I guess. So what do you got? Well, I appreciate that, but this is where it's going to get a little dicey. I'm sure just to set the stage here, this has been something that's kind of been building up over the last couple weeks. So as we all know, by now, Zach Eady made the decision to withdraw from the NBA draft and return to Purdue. And that posed a question in my mind, can Zach Eady improve his draft, his draft stock? My answer was, yes, he can, or he he has room to improve it, and he can. Adam's defense was, he cannot improve his draft stock. So, 
with that, we've kind of been building up this debate for a couple weeks, and it's finally time. And Adam, I don't know if you like this or not, but since this is my part of the episode, I would like you to give your argument first. Why do you think that there is no room for Zach Eady to improve his draft stock? See, I don't like this strategy because I had planned to go after, but fine, I'll, I'll play ball here. So the first thing I would like to say, because I want to clarify this, my point about him improving his draft stock is simply for the idea of he's not going to get better in terms of his overall statistics. So let's let's jump into that for a minute, shall we? So each year, Zach Eady's prospects have improved. So there's no denying that Eady has become a better player the last three years that he's been at Purdue. His freshman year, he started with eight and a half points and four rebounds a game on 59% shooting and 74% from the free throw line. His second year, he had 14.4 points, 7.7 rebounds on 64.8% shooting, but he took a slight decline in field or in foul percentage at 65. Now, both of those seasons, he was playing under 20 games. So last season is when he took the big jump and he took a big jump. Nothing short of that. I don't think anyone's going to argue that 22 and a half points, 13 rebounds a game on 61% shooting and 73% from the free throw line. He also had 2.1 blocks every other season. He had averaged right about one, but he was playing 31 minutes a game last season. So again, to this point, your argument stands valid. He's improved. Fine. No, no denying it. But let's look at things from a, from a statistical point of knowing his numbers from last season at the rate that he would have to go, again, okay, to improve his draft stock. Notice what's missing right there. Everything I've talked about is that he's not, it's not discussing three-point shooting. Okay? So, it's hard to see him improve his minutes. 31 minutes out of a 40-minute schedule for a college basketball game is already big, is already a lot, especially for someone that's 7'4 and is slow like he is. Now, I'm going to throw my insults out for a minute. Now, he has been consistent on his foul shooting. He's not getting to 80%. The fact that he shoots 75 nearly for someone his size is already rather impressive to me. He does have a good hook shot. Again, these are things that we already know. But you think about 60% shooting from right in front of the basket. Okay? So, that to me is a bad thing. Someone that is the size that Edie is and has the shot capabilities on the hook shots and things should be scoring closer to 70 to 75% from the range that he's in. Now, yes, I'll, I'll acknowledge he probably gets a lot of coverage because he's a big guy. But again, there's no excuse for it. So there's argument number one. Now, argument number two. Edie waited until two and a half hours before the May 31st deadline. 9.04 is when he made the announcement on Twitter that he was coming back. So to me, what that means is that he took so long because he had a guarantee of being drafted by a team. And I say a guarantee of being drafted. It didn't say where he wanted of being drafted. He was already rated as the fifth best center in this process, according to draft analysts all over the web. Okay. Now, 
you and I can both agree he didn't get the offer he wanted, and it was likely near the end of the second round. It was reported Edie wanted to be picked at the beginning of the second round. Now, Edie was likely told that he would have to expand his shooting, just like Trace Jackson Davis was told the same thing, to have a shot at getting drafted. So, he probably made the decision after that to come back to school with that in mind. They told him what he needed to do. But here's the thing. In order for his draft stock to improve, he will have to consistently start making mid-range shots. He would have to start transitioning to shooting three-pointers. And we already know that when he gets away from the basket and, you know, people are going to be more vulnerable to being able to steal it from him. That's going to open up shot opportunities for the other team. It's going to lead to poor transition defense for him because he's going to have to adjust in a dip of a different way. Now, according to Instat, so far in his career, he has taken one single shot outside of the paint. One shot outside of the paint. And yes, this was accurate as of two weeks ago when I looked it up. So the stat has not changed. One shot outside the paint means he has no range to shoot the ball. None. Now, Someone that is his size, yes, should not have to step away from the basket in the first place. But that's the way it's going to be. And then finally, this is just from what I picked up on other sites as well. It was said that Zach Eady was told he will have to improve his offhand shooting to excel. And if he doesn't, he has to also have the ability to work on faster getting faster in order to have players avoid picking him apart. So his game is excellent in college, but going to the NBA, it's a whole different ball game on speed. So will he take this season to try to improve? Yes, but let's move on to two more things I've got on this. And then you can give your arguments as much as you want. So Zach Eady's return has nothing to do with him getting better. And this is where it's going to probably get heated in a couple of minutes. Has nothing to do with him getting better. Now, you and I both know that Matt Painter will do anything he can to make his guys go to the NBA. I already read your notes on your argument, so I'm going to pick you apart for a minute. Hey, that's cheating, bro. Hey, you posted it. Don't don't refer to my notes. Let me use my notes. Say what you have on your notes, and then we can go back and forth. But you mentioned in your notes a bunch of the Purdue players that have been drafted or highly thought of in recent years. So let's look at that, shall we, and how their games have translated. We're not getting into my notes until I get to share them. So oh, no, if that's I'm, all I'm, you have I'm, on I'm, your notes, you can hand the microphone over to me. But oh, if no, you have I'm more still, on your notes, I'm, please continue. I'm still on my notes. Don't worry. Then why are I'm, you looking at my notes? I don't I'm even look, have your notes in front of me. I know. I had a plan. Don't I'm not going to let you get into my notes, bro, without letting me talk. I'm I'm on my notes at the moment. So, I only saw your notes with the players, and then it actually connected to mine. So, we're going to make some arguments about some Purdue players. That's my only point I was trying to make. But, we know Purdue's history of sending big guys to the NBA. But I'm wanting to look at that in further depth as well. So, let's begin with A.J. Hammonds. Then let's begin with Caleb Swan again. I was going to mention Haas, but then I realized he didn't get drafted. So it's not worth really mentioning. So A.J. Hammonds and Caleb Swanigan, you know, are power forwards. That's why they got drafted. 
in the first round. Regardless, I believe Hammonds was a senior when he got drafted. Swanigan was a junior. I can you can correct me on if I'm wrong on those because I don't remember the years. I'm pretty sure Hammonds. The only thing I will correct you on because I'm making an effort not to interrupt you. AJ Hammonds was a seven foot one center. But okay, fair enough. But that'll help my argument more, which is fine. So knowing the history on them, okay, they did leave Purdue at their peak. They had nothing more to prove in college, and you know what they did. That was the highest point they would have gotten drafted. Why? Because seniors are not highly sought after by the NBA. That's valuable playing time in the association that they're losing. So, looking at all of that, okay, Edie right now was at his peak. Now, he reflects that he has room for improvement. But here's the problem with all of that. At the end of the day, what will be remembered about Edie will come from Matt Painter's inability to get the team out of the first round in the tournament. Yes, it's an unfair argument to make, but one I'm going to make anyway. Now, teams for Edie's at this point are going to look at that. There's no arguing that he can't shoot close and that he can't rebound and that he can't block. Those are things that are intangibles that he doesn't have to develop. But where he's going to be looked at poorly is his inability to win. There is no excuse, and I'm going to say it. You agree with me on this. There is no excuse for Purdue to lose to Farley Dickinson in the first round of this tournament this year. None. That The stage was set for Purdue to be pretty much the top team in the tournament, and they blew it. Now, that might be more to blame on Painter, but I'm going to blame it on Edie as well, just the same. So, knowing that he barely got out of the first round, knowing that he didn't step up in the big moments. He didn't play better under pressure. He wasn't hitting twos consistently and got outplayed by a team that basically was barely Division One and shouldn't have been in the tournament because they got in on a technicality. So, sure, Edie showed his peak this year. But we know that they look for teams with strong attributes in the second round. Do I think he could still get drafted in the second round next year? Sure. But if you think he's going to get drafted at the top of the second round with any sort of momentum this year, it's just not going to happen. You have Hunter Dickinson going out for this draft next year. He will get drafted before him. Kyle Ware, who, yes, might be raw, but he will get drafted. So he's at least the third best center. And that's me not even going any further in. And it doesn't matter if IU wins with Ware or not. Dickinson, we know, is a proven player that's a little bit smaller it's just not going to go his way so again he could be developed better than any center in college not going to deny him that he probably is the best center in the college game hence why he was player of the year but he's not going to offer anything new to the team of Purdue and that's why he won't improve now my final piece on this Let's spell out why he returned, because I told you I was going to talk about that. Reports indicated that Edie will earn close to $1 million to return. As of right now, I believe the sum is $1.3 million, if I've read correctly. That is the equivalent of an early second-round pick. I don't think he returned to improve. I think he returned because the money was better. 
So Edie was never going to go that early in the second round. He wanted guarantees that he was never going to get. So why not return to Purdue for the money? He returned for the guarantees. He is very popular with your fan base. That fueled a return. Now, I will add this in. I think he can repeat what he did last year. But it won't improve anything unless Purdue makes a tournament run. Edie's going to be remembered at Purdue as a good center. But this year, with him returning, you didn't lose any of your starters. You lost barely any of your bench. If they don't get close to winning the title, his return is for nothing. It doesn't improve his stock, and then he likely doesn't get drafted. To me, winning is how it gets shaped. Now, E knows he's probably not getting drafted as high because he knows the NBA teams are looking for something different than what he offers. The shooting, speed, versatility, and the stat line abilities. He has that stat line ability. We know he has the shooting from up close. But you can't coach speed for someone that weighs nearly 270 like him. Even if, if he cuts the weight, he starts to lose his strength to play the center. He has a role ahead of him if he decides to go to the NBA. He is a rotational center. That's regardless of whether he gets drafted or not. I don't want it to be like Taco Fall because all that dude could do is rebound and dunk. Edie can at least shoot the ball a little bit. But, again, remember, to this point, he has only taken one shot outside of the paint and has never attempted a three. Any player can do close well to the rim. And that's where I'll stop. All right. So before I get into my argument, I just want to remind you and everyone else, because I think you're missing this part of it. This whole debate was on whether, in fact, Zach Eady can improve his stock or not. Not if he will, but whether or not he can. And with that being said, I'm going to present my argument as to why I think he can improve his stock. So, with that being said, I think there are two things that Edie needs to work on to improve his stock. You mentioned the shooting. One thing you meant, you failed to mention was the teams were looking for him to improve his ability to defend on the perimeter. But first, let's get into shooting, as that's one of your main arguments there. So, first, I want to get this out of the way, Adam. The ability to knock down threes is not the only aspect of this, okay? If Edie can show the ability to develop any kind of a mid-range game, then that alone could catapult his draft stock. Again, I'm using words like if, because my argument is he can improve, not he will improve. Keep that in mind. So then you're left with two questions as far as the shooting goes. Is he capable of developing a shooting game? And would Matt Painter be willing to give Edie those opportunities? So that's where I dive into this list of players you referred to. So this is just a short list. I'm sure I'm missing a few people, but these are just some of the players that Painter had a history with helping them reach the NBA in some capacity or another. Carson Edwards, Vince Edwards, A.J. Hammonds, Robbie Hummel, Jaden Ivey, Juwan Johnson, Dakota Mathias, Etwan Moore, and this one I saved for last for a reason, Caleb Swanigan. Now, you may be wondering why I saved Caleb Swanigan for, for last. I just want to remind you, Adam, Swanigan spent two seasons in West Lafayette, and one of the main reasons he returned for his sophomore season was the inability to consistently knock down three-pointers. And at one point in his freshman season, 
Swanigan even got put in the doghouse as far as shooting goes from three. But in his sophomore season, Painter began to loosen the reins, and Swanigan improved his three-point shooting by nearly 15%. Now, I'm not saying this is what Zach Eady's going to do. I'm saying this because Painter didn't need Caleb Swanigan to take more three-pointers that season or to improve because they had four 40% or better shooters on the team already outside of Swanigan. The only reason Painter installed this into the game plan and allowed Swanigan to take those shots was to help Swanigan set up better for the next level. So that, to me, answers the question as to whether or not Painter is willing to give Edie those opportunities. If Edie can prove the ability to do so, Painter is going to give him those abilities, no questions asked. So then that leaves the question, if he gets the opportunities, can he take advantage of it? So, and this kind of leads into something that you talked about earlier. So, the closest thing to a jump shot or anything outside of the paint that Edie has had in his arsenal is his free throw shooting. You alluded to it. Last season, Zach Edie shot 74% from the free throw line. And as you mentioned, that's pretty average except for when you take into the consideration his size. And that is an extraordinarily high percentage for a guy his size. And if you don't believe, if you don't believe that, go watch some old YouTube videos of Shaquille O'Neal shooting free throws. It's not oh, pretty. He was less than fifty percent. You're absolutely right. right about that. So, and this is just a short introduction to people to basketball if they aren't if, not, if they aren't familiar. The free throw line is fifteen feet from the basket. My argument is this, Adam. All he has to do is take a couple steps back. And there's no reason not to believe that Edie can't knock down a 17 to 20 foot shot. Now, if you're worried about him taking contested shots in that range, I have three words for you, Adam. Pick and pop. We saw last year the problem that Braden Smith and Zach Edie gave everyone in their pick and roll game. Now, I want to propose this to you. Zach Edie sets up a screen and you don't know if he's going to roll or if he's going to pop over for a mid-range shot. And I don't know about you, Adam, but if I'm the defense, I'm taking my chances on him rolling and defending that. And he's going to get open looks if they choose to do so. So that's number two. Number one, a free throw, a couple steps back, it's a mid-range shot. Number two, he would have the ability, if they install this into the game plan, to get even if it's two or three open shots a game that he gets to take. That alone, I think, could propel his draft stock. Now let's get into the thing that you failed to mention, defending the perimeter. And I'm going to keep this one a little bit shorter than the whole shooting thing, but I honestly think that this might be more important than improving his shooting if he wants to improve his stock. So you mentioned, you know, down around the rim, Zach Eady is like one of one. He excels in zone defenses, and he's tremendous playing defense down around the rim. But NBA players and coaches, they're smart. They'll they'll find a way to isolate him out on the perimeter. So, needless to say, that's why this is important for Edie to gain this into his arsenal. But let's to get to that point, let's look at some of the stats from the combine this year, Adam. So among centers, and these first few are not going to be any surprise, but among all centers at the NBA combine, Edie finished first in height, first in standing reach and first in wingspan. So those three right there, like I said, are why he's so dominant down around the rim on defense. But there is one gem, Adam, and this 
is where I saw the potential for him to get better on the perimeter defense. As far as centers go and at the NBA Combine, Zach Eady was the fastest in the lane agility test. Now, if you're like me or anyone listening like me had no idea what the lane agility drill was, let me tell you what it tests for. The lane agility drill tests for speed, body control, and the ability to change direction. I don't know about you, Adam, but three things you really need when you're defending someone out on the perimeter is speed, you need to have control of your body, and you need to have the ability to change change directions. A reminder for what I just said, Zach Eady had the fastest lane agility drill out of all centers at the Combine this past season. Now, if you implement that speed, body control, and ability to change direction and add on some more fundamental defensive things that maybe he wasn't working on prior, he is going to show the ability to defend on the perimeter. So with all of that being said, I just want to make one conclusion statement, and we're not going to get in this big back and forth. We'll we'll talk openly about uh, about Mm -hmm. this a little bit more after, but my conclusion statement is this. I have not, and I will not say that Zach Eady will improve his draft stock, but... What I've been saying all along and what I will continue to say and believe is Zach Eady has room to improve his stock, and I believe he will have the opportunity to do so. And that is where I rest my case. So here's my one thing. that It has nothing to do with your argument. It's more about your coach. Matt Painter is probably fighting for his job. I would have to make the one argument that if Painter is coaching for his job, I don't know how much risking he's going to want to take with that. I understand that he is about Edie's development too. And I, and I think that would really be a big testament to Matt Painter's character if he does let Edie, in fact, make all of these moves. You made a great point about the pick and pop. I think last year, Purdue's offense, kind of like I used, became predictable because you knew where the ball was going, like you, like you acknowledged. If Someone was not open, and I think, and I cannot remember the Purdue player at the moment. I apologize that you said that he was doing the pick and pops with, but usually it would be Edie trying to go down in the lane. I think that would be great if Edie could, in fact, shoot it. But again, the thing you also got to think about too is this idea of defense will be on him from 17 to 20 feet versus when you're at the free throw line, there's nothing. Now, that's but, not to say I, that he but can't Hold on, hold on a sec. You can't just talk about pick and pop and then throw the defense out there. That that was my whole thing with the contested shots. I'm not saying he's going to get nothing but open jump shots. I'm saying the pick and pop are going to give him, even if it's only two, maybe three attempts a game, open shots at mid-range. That's the whole point of pick and pop. Because you got you to gotta think, when Zach Eady sets up for that screen and Braden Smith starts going down towards the hoop. You need to make a decision, talking about the defense, right then and there. Is Zach Eady going to roll to the rim, or is he going to hop over for a jump shot? And this is, again, like I was saying, if I'm the defense, I'm just going to go with the roll approach, and I'm going to guard the rim, because if if Zach Eady's wide open, it's a no-brainer. It's a wide-open dunk. So that is what I'm saying, and he will, if they decide to implement it, he will have the ability to get a couple open shots a game. 
but that but that rests on a lot of hypotheticals. Like I said, you know, you're I think you're absolutely right. If they open up the game for Edie, it could do him wonders. And I won't and I won't say he can't make it from 17 to 20 foot. Again, I saw him literally torch IU in both games from, you know, it, it wasn't just right by the rim. And I and I and I wouldn't be fair for me to continue to say he only can dunk and shoot right next to the net. He has a shot that he can take from about eight to ten feet. He's not that terrible a little bit away from the rim. And you're right, you know, he moves further back. But, you know, you do, you start, I mean, you know the stat lines as well as I do, that the further away you move from the rim, that the worse the shots are going to get. And the other thing is, too, who's to say that Edie isn't going to try to, like, get to the open teammate if they're going after him? My argument there would be that it would probably help the team's development and it would help the team win games. Which exactly, again, which... Again, you're arguing against yourself in this. In but, this but, way. That's, but that's but that's me on. saying passing to other people. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me talk. You say you don't know if Matt Painter would be willing to give Edie these opportunities, knowing that his job could potentially be on the line. And now you're saying that adding this to the game or to to their game plan could potentially benefit the team also. So it's got to be one way or another, Adam. It can't be both ways. Well, you said if. That's why I'm saying it's all hypothetically based. That That's what this is. Again, I'll remind you, the, the argument has been and will be for me, I think Edie has the capability of improving his draft, his draft stock, which is, a, a, again, hypothetical. Never once, and you can go back to listen to our last few episodes, Never once have I said he will improve his draft stock. I think that's the part where you're getting caught up here. All I'm doing is presenting the argument for why I think he can improve. Not saying he will, for why I think he has the room to improve. Is that but, is that part of it at least fair? But it's it's fair in the sense of you you give what needs to happen. But I outright came and said that it wouldn't happen. I I would like I would like your honest assessment. For forget the hypotheticals of if it could or not. Do you think at the end of the day you see him getting to the NBA? I say yes, but so let's see. Do you think he he can get to the NBA? That's the first and foremost thing. Yes, we can agree on that part. But do you really see him getting? from the end of the second round to the beginning of the second. I, I don't think the middle of the second round is where he's going to want to be. And I think, like you said, if you implement these things, it could help him a little bit, but he's not getting past the middle or even the end. Again, it, him being a senior, I really do think hurts his again, draft stock right there. Again, here here's what I'm going to say. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He could be. He could stay into the second round. He can move up into the beginning of the second round. I don't know what's going to happen. Again, I think you have this whole argument misconstrued because when this whole started a couple weeks ago, there was no, he's not going to move up. You straight up said he won't have the ability to move up. There's no room for growth. That's what started this whole debate a couple weeks ago. And I, and I stand behind that. I'm right, saying that's fair. The- so, Neither of us are going to change our stance here, but we've both presented our argument. And if there's anybody listening that feels like heading over to any of our social medias to let us know your thoughts, I I would highly encourage it because, Adam, you and I both know this. We both have a a hard time of letting things go. So (laughs) 
if somebody could hop in, give us their two cents on this whole thing, and let us know what you think. Maybe that'll give us both something to take into consideration. But I don't know about you, Adam. As worked up as we could get some time over this stuff, one of the things I've loved about you the most in our long friendship is just this. Talking sports, whether that's agreeing or disagreeing or debating, this this probably... I know it's what kept this friendship as strong as it has for so many years. So even though it might sound like I've been getting a little worked up over this, and I know you know this, but just so that our listeners are aware as well, this is, this is fun for us. This is what we do. This is what our friendship was like rooted in, you know? So I just wanted to make that, you know, that note also. I think you're absolutely right about that. You know, I was sitting and actually talking about this at work with someone today and they're like, so let me get this straight. You're going to go on and you're going to argue about a Purdue player. It's like, that's exactly right. We're going to have a disagreement <laughs> on our perceptions about it. Now, I think just to kind of wrap up this and we'll we'll kind of get back into some other Indiana sports. Again, I want my argument to be known too. I, I don't think he's not an NBA player. And you brought out some really good stat lines that could support the reason why. But my thing is based on current trends in the NBA and how the NBA evaluates talent. You and I have both said on this podcast for weeks and perhaps even months now, if this was 10, 15, and 20 years ago, he's the number one player in this draft. And there's nobody that should be close to that. Again, as the national player of the year, the accolades are what bring the head or what brought the headlines. I guess I'm kind of sticking to an old school argument in a new era as to why in a sense, or sorry, let me correct that. I'm I'm not letting old school arguments kind of persuade my point here. I think, you know, he could have all the accolades. Because you said he got, what, like 20 awards as the best player of the year, and he couldn't even get drafted at the top of the second round. Yeah, I'm shocked to see Trace Jackson Davis even be considered where he is. And I think that's that's what it all boils down to. Now, I will say one final thing on this. and it's a little con contradictory to everything I've said. Trace Jackson Davis is 23, but he's a power forward that's developed. Edie will only be 22, but is a center in my mind that as a traditional center is developed. So I'll never shut the door on anything, but I still don't think it's going to happen that he gets evaluated earlier than where he is. And that's where I'll stand on that. Unless you have anything else you want to wrap up with. On nope, that argument. I'll, I'll, I'll let it go there because as you mentioned we still got some more stuff to get into here but again if if anybody listening wants to add their two cents or to jump into this conversation you can look us up on facebook or twitter which i will share those at the end of the episode as well but with that adam go ahead and get into some pacers talk i do want to bring up one last thing and it has nothing to do with this argument your article on Zach Eady has gotten a lot of reads. So I know that there are plenty of people that have an interest as into why he came back. So again, as much as the arguments might go against me, I ask too that, you know, add the comments of whether you agree with Joey or agree with myself on Facebook. Now we can move on to the Pacers, but, and this will be pretty short. I would like to think. So I got two big points on the Pacers. First thing is, Uh, Trace Jackson Davis actually did his workouts at the facility last week. 
And I found this aspect interesting, not the part that it's him training. I'm sure they're going through all of the prospects in great length because the Pacers have a great range of picks. But when the Pacers are doing these workouts with the prospects right now, the team is focusing on training with the actual players on the team right now. So this is more of a just curious question in my mind, and I want to see what your thinking is. But do you think that the players give input once they see these prospects in these workouts? And do you think with this type of training style that the players on the team get to give more input? And then I'll ask a second part about it. I can see that. I mean, it seems to be a trend around the NBA these days, and that's I wouldn't be surprised. What do you think? Um, I'd have to say I certainly agree with that. And I know that the big reason I I thought about this question is that uh, the Pacers have let Tyrese Halliburton really have a lot of freedom with kind of making decisions with who he wants on the team. I think it's no, you know, I don't think it's a hard secret anymore that the Pacers are probably going power forward in some capacity at some point in this draft. Now, I'll admit things are probably not looking good for Trace Jackson Davis anymore unless he's a second-round pick for us. But I I would like to think that if the players are seeing these prospects coming in and they're doing workouts with them, they're the ones that can probably give the best feedback to the coaches. Yes, the coaches can observe, but the players doing these workouts with people coming in, you know, to me, speaks volumes, you know. Can you understand the call that's being made or the game plan that's being drawn up? Can you catch the pass? Can you well, catch and shoot? Team to, chemistry, all sorts of things. Yeah, that you just mentioned that's what I was going to throw out there. You can also see how these guys gel with the team, you know, how not just, you know, on the court, but you want to see that they have some kind of relationship that can be built through there too personally because it's those personal relationships that really strengthen to the core of a team. Absolutely. So speaking on Pacers draft prospects, I believe if I'm right, this might be the final week before draft week and we might get really close and we should be able to make some predictions hopefully next week. But I want to look at the Pacers options with the lottery pick at seven. Now, I, I apparently was not as well versed on the draft prospects in the top 10 as I thought. So apparently there are some players that could possibly be options at power forward in the top 10. So remember the Pacers will pick at seven. So let's kind of look at the three big names that are kind of sticking out to me. And then we'll get some, you know, you know, ideas on ideologies for how the team should approach the pick. So lottery pick out of central Florida, Taylor Hendricks, Houston forward, Jarris Walker. And I probably said his first name wrong. They've had workouts with the team that we know of so far. So, Hendrick's stats out of UCF last season are that he shot 155 three-pointers and he made 39.1% of them while averaging 15 points and seven rebounds a game. So that hits a fit that Indianapolis needs or that Indy needs for a player of that position. So he's 6'9 and 210. Perfect height for a power forward. So Walker, he has publicly acknowledged a meeting with the team. So He's actually had interviews and, you know, he was the one that was getting a lot of the the press with Whitmore when Larry Bird was showing up. So Walker, he's a good player too out of Houston. You know, 
He may not have the three-point regimen. He shot 35% on those, but he's a high IQ player, comes with good decision-making. That's been documented by his coaches and NBA, NBA scouts. Now, he averaged 11 points and six rebounds a team, but unlike Hendricks, he's known to be a better defender. So again, you have arguments for uh, the Pacers have talked about trying to get someone that can shoot more threes at the power forward spot, and that Hendricks offers that with good rebounding. Uh, Walker is 6'8 and 240, so a little bit heavier, probably has a little bit more strength, but probably not as quick as Hendricks. And then finally, I want to talk about my preferred option, which would be Cam Whitmore, who I mentioned a couple weeks ago on the broadcast or podcast. So he was the first individual workout with the team. And then Hendricks was the second individual workout and Walker was the third individual workout. These are the three prospects that I believe the Pacers are looking at the closest at that seventh slot. And that's based on what I have found. Now, Whitmore is a little smaller at 6'7 and 232 pounds. All of these guys are freshmen. So, again, you know, it's a level playing field on age and things like that. Now, I did mention Whitmore statistics. He's a good three-point shooter with solid on points. Now, I want you to notice, Joey, first thing first, that my prediction is definitely coming true about power forward. I called this months ago. We acknowledged it last week. I think it's very clear where they're going at seven. Yeah, so, exactly. Looking at the three options that I've mentioned, if you're the Pacers and you need a power forward, you think about the modern NBA, are you trying to prioritize the three-pointers or the rebounds? Well, I know this is a little bit of, how's the saying go, having your cake and eat it too, but ideally... You want both, but if you're if you want me to really pick one, and in the way today's NBA is going, I'm I'm going after a guy that can shoot the three. I mean, power forward typically you're at a you're at a size where rebounds are going to find you one way or another. Mm-hmm. But if you get a guy that's already versatile and has that ability to shoot those threes, and that's even more of a plus. So I guess my answer would be the threes. Okay, now. The reason that I asked this question is I want you to remember what I talked about with Rick Carlisle's quote. He was quoted as saying he's looking for someone that can rebound and shoot. So all of that being pushed aside for the moment, I think the Pacers are, like you said, I agree with you that they are looking for a combo. But I want you to remember one metric I talked about last week. After the All-Star breaks, the Pacers were dead last dead last in team defense and defensive efficiency. To me right now, Walker has to be the favorite because of that high IQ, defensive efficiency. Yes, his points don't kind of stick out like Hendricks do. And I know that a lot of people would probably make the argument of, oh, Hendricks has the better stats. He's who you get. But again, the Pacers need to rebuild their defense. I do believe that having Halliburton back will be a big help. Having Miles Turner back will be a big help. But I don't think the team wants to sit near the bottom either. They were they were 24th in defense with Turner and Halliburton healthy. So I think that has to be a prioritize with the rebounding as well. So Walker is going to be my new prediction moving here. But 
The reason I mentioned Whitmore's name is the team also does need a small forward. Duarte doesn't really fit that role. Buddy Heald, I believe, gets traded. And Mathurin is more of a shooting guard. So I, I know you said you had a prediction on a player, but I wanted to get your curiosity as to where you think right now one of the which of these three you think would be the favorite. I hate to, to agree with you once again, especially after our heated debate on Zach Eady earlier, but I, I can understand the appeal with Henricks. I mean, you mentioned wait, hold on. Sorry. Walker I said the wrong name there. Uh, you mentioned that the high IQ hopefully would help the defense, but even with that, you mentioned that Hendricks' stats kind of jumped out a little bit more. They're actually pretty comparable. You know, Hendricks keep getting them mixed up. Walker shot just under 4% less than Hendricks did from deep and averaged just four points less and about the same in rebounds. So when you compare stats in addition to that high IQ and that ability to help on the defensive side, I think I'm going to have to agree with you and roll with Walker on this one. That's a good feeling. See, we've gotten right back into why I love talking about sports again. Eventually, Joey always comes around everybody. No, not <laughs> no, not how this works. Ah, uh, that felt good. All right, let's let's move. <laughs> I'm gonna on. let you have your moment this time, but not on the Zach Eady thing. We'll save that. Fair enough. All right, so moving into three kind of final points because there's something I I I don't know if you noticed my notes that I added to the end that I'd like to start trying to do a little bit more often. But uh, Indiana Fever, this should go pretty quick because I think most of us that have heard anything know about how this goes. So as we are probably not surprised by at this point, they continued the losing skid against the Chicago Sky. They did lose 108 to 103 in overtime. The reason I'm mentioning the games this week, unlike last, is that is the Fever's best scoring performance, regardless win or loss this season. So... Aaliyah Boston had a game of coming out. She's had 25 points on 80% shooting with 11 rebounds. Erica Wheeler, whose name I'll continue to probably say, you know, more lately because she's really improved. She had 12 points and 12 assists. And Lexi Hull, whose name I never say, also contributed 12. So with that, Chicago moved to 5-3 and three and the Fever moved to 1-5. So... They also played the Minnesota Lynx, who have a one in six record. They had one game less, and both of those were the worst teams in their respective conferences. The Fever managed to win that game by two points, 71 to 69. So they moved to two and five on the year. Now, Mitchell or Kelsey Mitchell had 22 points in that game. Aaliyah Boston had 10 and 11, 10 points, 11 rebounds. Nalisha Smith had 12 points and 12 rebounds. And again, the big headline to me, as I mentioned with Wheeler, she continues to play a bigger role. I've noticed that her minutes continue to rise with every single game. So it's starting to get interesting in terms of even though they're losing, they're giving different players a chance. And now um, finally, oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead and finish. All right. And then I was going to say finally for the week, the Fever lost on Sunday after they held a lead for much of the game. I, I was kind of watching the game cast of this. They were leading by quite a bit, you know, right before halftime. I think they had a three to a five point lead. And then the second half, you know, it was just all Phoenix. And I, I know people know about the whole Brittany Griner coming back and, you know, having, you know, a good game. She had 29 points for for them in that game. And then Nalisha Smith also for the Fever had 29 points. 
and 12 rebounds and four assists. And again, Erica Wheeler, there's her name again, had 17 points and eight assists. Now, next week, we'll probably, you know, dive a little further if the Fever don't win tonight in their second game this this week into kind of figuring out, you know, some ideas about how to win. But, you know, the trend continues to be they beat the bad teams and they lose to the good ones. Well, and just to put in my two cents here, I'm just going to double down on what I said last week. The trend's continuing. Even these losses are one-possession losses. So when you think about that, you're normally one turnover away or, you know, a couple missed free throws away. And those are things that a team this young and this inexperienced will gradually improve on. So while, yes, they're racking up the losses, they're at least staying competitive in these games. And you get a little bit more experience under their belts. And some of these two to three point losses can become two to three point wins. So kind of hard to suffer through all these losses, but it definitely does seem like there's a light at the end of the tunnel for the fever. That's a very open-minded perspective. That's that's good to have. And finally, before we get into my news segment, uh, the Indiana State Sycamores, we've been talking about them for a couple weeks, and after this week, we won't be talking about them probably ever again, realistically, unless they do something else. But uh, again, they had a they continued in the College World Series this past week. Their games were supposed to be played at Indiana State, and I'll dive more into this in just a second, but they had to be moved to TCU because of the Special Olympics. So how that series went is the following. So the in- Indiana State Sycamores lost their first game last Friday by a score of 4-1, to one, and then game two on Saturday resulted in a 6-4 to four loss, which, again, it's two losses in those, those brackets, and then you're out. So, again, that did officially knock Indiana State out of the College World Series. And, again, this was their best season since the 1980s, only their second appearance in the College World Series. So it is a shame that we our Cinderella story did not go so well. But, again, there is always next year they have a lot of good players coming back to that team. Now, the reason I bring them up again, here's what was interesting to me about this whole setup. And, again, I think this is a nice, good good feel sports story. So as I mentioned a minute ago, this game was supposed to be played at Indiana State. Okay, Indiana State was supposed to host the tournament. TCU should have come there. And again, had things changed, maybe we'd be looking at them playing another week. But due to the lack of hotels in Terre Haute, they weren't able to do it. And again, I mentioned a second ago that was because they were hosting the Special Olympics at Indiana State's University in Terre Haute. So here's what happened as a response to that. And I love this story when I was reading about it. I so did T- too. So TCU fans decided to get together and they responded by donating. And this was as of earlier this week or earlier this week, this past weekend, the money might be higher now, but TCU fans donated over $25,000. And yes, I mean, just TCU fans to the Special Olympics committees and organizations. And then TCU also donated $1 from each concession sale that they made this past weekend in the tournament towards the Special Olympics. So, Joey, I just wanted to get your thoughts on ISU prioritizing the Special Olympics over sports and then your thoughts on TCU's response as well. Well, my overall response is just kudos in both situations, you know. Uh, as far as Indiana State's involvement, it would have been pretty easy to 
you know, postpone or move this the Special Olympics because you think about it, what's going to bring in more money? Probably the College World Series. But at the same right, you know, this is what this is what was booked, and this is what we're going to do. So kudos on there and there, and then on the TCU fans and TCU side of things, I think that's an amazing gesture gesture by them. You know, I, stories I love to hear about, and you mentioned it made you extremely happy when you read it. It had the same effect on me. I remember reading it the other day and just couldn't help but to have a smile while you're reading that news. So kudos to both, both things in this scenario. Well, my final thoughts on this are, you know, like you said, kudos certainly, but I'm going to give more kudos to Indiana state here. And I think the idea behind this is, you know, we in America live in a culture that is very much shaped by sports, you know, whether it's youth league sports, whether it's high school sports, college sports, professional sports. And, you know, so many people will make that a priority almost over things that could be considered more important. I'm sure everybody that's listening to us has probably watched some movie or had some scenario where, you know, like someone valued something over someone else that might have been more important. They came to regret it. And then they tried to go back and apologize, which, of course, those movies always have happy endings and whatnot. But I think the happy ending in this scenario was already there. And Indiana State stuck to their principles and really showed, you know, what kind of committee Terre Haute has and what kind of university Indiana State is. So, again, I agree with you. Kudos to them, certainly, on that. Yes, indeed. And so, finally... So one thing I wanted to start this week, and I apologize to everybody, it's been a lot of me talking tonight, which I know is different, but (laughs) um, I wanted to do some highlights around the state. And the reason that I wanted to do this is one of our listeners actually privately messaged me and was telling me, it's like, you know, I know you guys talk about professional sports and it is, you know, great that you talk about Indiana's professional teams, but, you know, you could really be talking more about the high schools and what's going on around the state, you know, that's other sports news as well. And so maybe this will become a bigger segment. Maybe it'll be articles written and things. I'm not, I'm not sure what direction I want to take it yet. I'm sure Joey will kind of guide me, but I just wanted to mention a few brief pointers. And again, this isn't anything I wanted to like discuss very much in length. And I'm sure Joey will be more than well, and I'm sure more than willing to contribute a, a comment or something to it next week. But Uh, The biggest thing that stuck out to me this week is that a Franklin High School baseball player by the name of Max Clark was named the 2023 Gatorade National Player of the Year. Now, this is a high school baseball player. Now, Joey, for me, this is a pretty big deal. And the reason of it is, is, you know, Indiana in the fall slash, you know, earlier this year, you know, had a basketball player get the National Gatorade Player of the Year. And that was Flory Bedinga. And I was for basketball. So again, you know, I don't think people give Indiana sports enough credit. And, you know, you see great players develop into, you know, the major leagues and the NFLs and the NBAs from this state. But it all starts at those lower levels. And so well, if you don't mind, I just want to add in this on that. Um, when you and I were in attendance to that Huntington North versus Kokomo game to watch Flory, I'm sure you'll recall there was a student, I, I believe he was at one of the middle schools and one of the elementary schools in in Huntington, but he, he was born in the same country as Flory. 
and he lives in Huntington now and goes to school there. So obviously he's a big, big fan of Flory. And I mentioned that, you know, and I'm going to include this Max Clark in here. A lot of times, and this could just be me, but growing up in Indiana, you think this state's pretty boring. It doesn't offer much. And then you get to see some people like Max Clark, like Flory, getting national attention. And then you kind of relate to it. And you get to this point where, okay, if he can do it in the same state I can, I can do it too. So I just wanted to throw that in there, in there because it is pretty significant when you think of it in that light. And I think that's a great perspective to look at it from, you know, like, you know, it's funny you bring up the Indiana boring thing. There was actually just on the radio this morning I was listening and it talked about how Indiana was the 39th worst state for entertainment. And, you know, like, I think here's the problem with that. You're looking at it as a mainstream thing. So they rated Indiana 22nd in nightlife. Joey, you and I are too old to know anything about that. We go to bed <laughs> at 930 or yeah, in your case, going to work. What's nightlife? Exactly. <laughs> but I think, you know, there's so much behind the scenes. And, you know, Indiana recently adopted the the motto, instead of being Crossroads of America, of in Indiana. And I guess the idea of it is to promote the historical, you know, significance of things happening around the state, cultural significance, and the things that happen in our state. And, you know, one of the biggest pieces that comes out of this is, you know, there is a lot of good sports that come out of this state. And again, I think that's one of the reasons we started this podcast is to bring more awareness to that. And so, again, when you get players from Indiana earning the national awards, you know, that's pretty significant. And, you know, for me, it takes me back to why I love talking about sports so much. It's the the humble beginnings of people that lead to the great things for people. You know, you talked about, you know, the kid in Huntington idolizing Flory, you know, I think that's the same thing that can be said in all of our local communities. So certainly you have players and people or uh, players that people look up to. You have hopes for them, dreams for them. You're joining in their journeys with them. And Franklin or Max Clark is actually from where our buddy Tosh is from. So lives right down there and goes to school down there where he lives. So again, that's someone in his local community that maybe he knew was there, maybe he didn't. But the idea that Indiana has opportunities and well-developed, you know, abilities in sports, you know, that's, it, it's just awesome to me. But you have anything else on that to say before I finish up our highlights? Nope. I, I think that's a good, a good thing that you pointed out there. And just again, echo what I said earlier. It's just nice to see those storylines pop up. Certainly can agree with that too. So, this is just more recruiting news. So uh, in-state cornerback Christian Peterson from Carmel High School, in-state offensive lineman Adele Mola Ajani from Speedway High School, and then Evan Lawrence, who is an offensive lineman, all three committed to college this week. And again, what's significant about this is that there was a big football camp down at IU and across the state where universities were coming in and looking at players that you know, still hadn't committed yet. And so all three of those young men committed to the IU football program. And it's great that, you know, we're keeping some of our local state talent here. Now, I, I know that Christian Peterson is actually a pretty highly thought of corner. I believe he might even be a four-star corner. The other two linemen are both three-star guys, but pretty awesome to see that going on. And then obviously this is 
not so much a highlight from around the state as it is something that happened with one of the IU programs as well, is they got a 24 commitment from Sidney Finn, who's from New York. So again, Indiana teams making some big noise, both at the college level for IU. And I'm sure Purdue's also had players commit to them. But what I will say finally about all those players committing that kind of stuck out to me is uh, I I take back my statement about it it being Indiana. Uh, A lot of the Big Ten teams were running camps. And so when I was reading the articles about all this, you know, it mentioned that IU managed to get three people in that camp of like, I don't know, 20, 30 players, something like that. While I didn't see Purdue's name there, you know, they've made their own noise with getting good football recruits under their new head coach, Ryan Walters. And then, you know, they've got a good season to look forward to as well and, with some continuous play there. And as uh, as we finally start to wind down from basketball conversations, I know we have the NBA draft coming up here soon, but I'm sure we'll dive more and more into the football programs for each of these schools as well. And I, I, I definitely plan on looking into some of these recruits. Obviously we have Hudson Carr that transferred over from Texas. So could be an exciting year for Purdue football, but I just wanted to say real quick, Adam, I'm excited to see where you take this new segment. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. So hopefully we both get some good information about that. I'm just going to continue to read online and then hopefully, you know, you guys will enjoy it, which kind of leads me to my last segment before we get to verse of the week. Um, I know that we don't really do this very often, Joey, or maybe we haven't done it at all. I'll have to go back and listen. But, you know, if there's something that any of you want us to talk about on the podcast, feel more than free to message us on Facebook or on Twitter or, you know, on any of our other social medias, TikTok. And uh, Joey knows more of the particulars. It's all Hoosier One State Sports or Hoosiers, Hoosier sports, all that good stuff. But I'll let him dive into that so I don't mess up and lead you all to the wrong place. Yeah. As Adam mentioned, if you want to find us at any social media, I'll list them here. Uh, Facebook, just Hoosier State Sports. Twitter, at Hoosier One, as in the number one sports. we also on TikTok now, just Hoosier State Sports on TikTok. Uh, Working on a YouTube channel. That'll be up and running soon, but... Like Adam said, even if you wanted to come to, I don't, I don't know about Adam, but me personally, you can even come to my personal page if you want. It's not hard to find, you know, shoot us a message, leave us a comment. If there's anything that you feel like we missed or you want us to talk about in the future, just let us know and we'll do our best to work it in. You know, if, if we're not familiar with it, we'll do our research because that's one thing neither of us mind doing. We love learning more about sports in the state. Nope. Can certainly, or can certainly agree with that. Well, care if I move on to verse of the week, Adam? Absolutely. Go right ahead. (laughs) All right. As you all know, Father's Day is this upcoming weekend, so kind of wanted to find a verse that would reflect that. So today's verse comes from Ephesians 6, 4, and it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instructions of the Lord. I just thought that this was a good reminder, you know, for me and i'm sure other men out there listening you know it, it it's easy to lose patience these days you know we we go to work we come home we're tired you know so it's easy to have you know very little patience and and i'll be the first to admit there's times where i'm a little less patient with my kids than i wish i was and and th- this whole first, first part of it don't provoke them to anger i 
I know I have a bad habit sometimes of nitpicking and I'm sure I'm not the only one with it, you know, that struggles with this, especially being tired from work and all, but I just want to encourage myself and others to take that into consideration. But the second part of this verse where it says, but bring them up in the discipline and instructions of the Lord. This is something else that I've really been trying to work on here lately. You know, I, for a, a long time, I've been trying to raise my kids under my understanding of what I think they need to learn to be successful in the world. And it's easy to forget that it's all in the Bible. You know, you want to raise them up in the word almost as much as you want to be in the word yourself, because at the end of the day, if you don't bring them up with the foundation in Christ, it doesn't matter what you do. You're almost setting them up for failure. If you leave that key aspect out of it. So with Father's Day coming up, I didn't mean to be a downer on this, but I just thought I myself needed this reminder, and I thought maybe other fathers out there could use it as well. I guess for me, you know, when I think about this quote or this verse, you know, what really sticks out is the concept of discipline and instruction from the Lord. You know, uh, one of the things, I'll and I'll tell you this now, Joey, I don't know if I had or not. My trainings weren't just trainings. I'm actually taking a college course right now on coaching, believe it or not. And so one of the biggest pieces that came out of that for me today is the whole idea of, you know, in order to bring people up, you have to have solid leadership. You know, I think everyone thinks about their dads either for what they were for them and being good fathers or what they wanted them to be. And, you know, there's no other way to go about it. You know, when we look at our fathers for whether they're good or bad or not, you know, there's the concept of either leadership being there or leadership not being there. But, you know, like Joey said, and I'll echo his statements is, you know, God puts all the instructions in there, you know, the ways that we are supposed to be leaders to our kids. And, you know, like, as I have my two little boys just sitting and goofing around in my living room right now, and, you know, I have a daughter on the way, you know, the biggest piece for me is, am I doing what I need to be doing for them? Am I bringing them up? in the right discipline? Am I, you know, following the instructions that God has given me to follow, to raise my kids, you know? And yes, there's certainly a code of ethics that kids need to follow too. But, you know, Father's Day is about not that we are fathers. It's what we do as fathers, what role we play. And certainly, you know, like Joey said, you know, I don't think I provoke my children to anger so much, but, you know, I think provoking our children to anger is, you know, just, I mean, it's simple enough to do in anything, but we have to be intentional in how we parent. We have to be intentional in what our role is, you know, and supporting our kids, whether they're, you know, toddlers, like my little boys, whether, you know, they're preteens, like your little girls, or, you know, they're adult children and, you know, their parents are a lot older, you know, we all have a role to play as dads. And I think, you know, that's one thing that we could all stand to do a little bit better is, you know, bringing them up in the right discipline and instructions. And perhaps if we do, maybe we can make the world a better place. So sorry to get all preachy right there, but those are kind of my thoughts on that. Nothing wrong with that. I think you made some good points there, but you got anything else, Adam, before we wrap it up? Nope. I'm okay with wrapping up tonight. All right. Well, Adam, thank you as always for these conversations. Everyone else, I'd like to thank you for joining us. I hope 
Hope you stuck with us. I know it's been a bit of a longer episode, but we will be back next Tuesday with another episode. In the meantime, as I mentioned earlier, you can keep up with us on social medias. I won't go through listing them all again, but you can also find us at HoosierStateSports.com. We've both been a little bit more active on there. I'm going to try to get some more stuff up this week on there, so make sure to check it out. But until next week, God bless. Have a good week.